right, we're in Acts chapter 9 tonight. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be going through uh, the whole chapter. Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at the uh, famous story of the conversion of Saul. And I've uh, really been enjoying going through the book of Acts. There's just a lot of really interesting things uh, that we see, a lot of uh, interesting things to think about when you look at the book of Acts with the perspective that the Christians, again, they did not necessarily think of themselves as a new religion when they follow Christ. They saw themselves as being true to their old religion and actually being obedient to Moses. And when you keep those things in mind, it really helps put a lot of stuff into perspective. And I think it's important to do that. And uh, starting you know, next week, well, I'm, I won't be preaching next week, Brother Austin will. I'm going to be um, uh, preaching in Nebraska. But um, when, uh, one thing that we'll see in, so in two weeks in chapter 10, so it really starts getting interesting when the church gets a hold of this idea of everything going to the the gospel going to the Gentiles. And so, but here we're going to see that Saul is going to be somebody that God is going to use in a major way. He's somebody that we saw in the previous two chapters. He was mentioned at the stoning of Stephen. Uh, He was there holding the coats of the people that were stoning him. And then in the next chapter eight, it mentions he was consenting to their death. And so now here we see uh, Saul being somebody who is a major villain in the church. And folks, this right here, this is like how it is in a lot of TV shows where you have like the villain who ends up becoming the good guy. And that's literally what happens in this story. I mean, the church's ultimate villain, pretty much, the guy who is leading in the persecution gets saved and joins them. I mean, folks, that's a great story right there. The Bible's got the best, the best stories. And most, uh, a lot of stories that are out there today, they're like knockoffs of the Bible story. They, they really are a lot of examples of that. And I think this is another good one. But in verse 1, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So remember, uh, remember, you know, back then you have the temple. That's the main headquarters. But they had synagogues all over the place where they would go, and that was where they would read the scriptures. They didn't all have Bibles in their house, but they had synagogues, and they would go and they would hear Moses read. Uh, we're going to see that later mentioned in the book of Acts. And that was where they would assemble together, gather together, worship together, go and pray together. I mean, it was kind of like their version of church, like we have today. And we see that Saul, in order for him to have the authority to go to these other synagogues, because Everything was mainly concentrated in Jerusalem, but when the persecution started, they started going out to these other places throughout Israel, and it wasn't enough. They said, you know what? We're going to get him in these other places too. And so he goes there to get letters to have the authority to go to these other synagogues so he can run them off too. Now, again, you know, what are Christians doing hanging out in the synagogues? Well, again, why wouldn't they think they have right to the synagogue? They, they didn't change religions. They were obedient to Moses. So they would have no reason to think at this time, we have, there's no reason for us to quit going to the synagogues. We're Christians now. The church is now just getting established. Things are just beginning. And, uh, and they did. They felt they had right. And you know what? They did have right. They did have right to the synagogues. But you know what Jesus told them in Matthew 24? He warned them. He said, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. You know why? Because overall, the Jews 
apostatized. Overall, the Jews, they went against the word of God, they went against the law of Moses, and they apostatized, and they drove the good people all out. And, and, they, and then uh, the prophecy, you could say there was a fulfillment of that there during that time. And so that's what they're trying to do right now. Paul is, or Saul is trying to bring to pass what Jesus said was going to come on those who followed Christ and did the right thing. And so that's happening. And verse 3 says, And as he journeyed, he uh, came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And right here is such a wonderful example of the grace of God where Saul, in the midst of being wicked and planning on doing more wickedness, we see God saving him. Now, stuff like this brings some legitimate questions to people's minds. Because, I mean, this right here, it almost looks a little bit like a Calvinist salvation. Because, I mean, folks, who isn't going to get saved? You know, if, I mean, a light comes like happened right here, and then Jesus Christ himself speaks to you. I mean, obviously, and, then, and again, Saul didn't have a repentant heart at this time. He's on his way to kill Christians, and then all of a sudden... Jesus literally shows up and does this and speaks to him. Of course, he's going to get saved. That's not fair. Where's my road to Damascus experience? I want to see something like that. I want a vision. I want to see a light. I want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you this. Are you sure about this? Are you sure? Because, you know, if we look, we look at some things and if we think a little bit, you know, I'll bet you don't want that kind of experience as much as you think you do. I, I really do. And, and so, uh, uh, we see though, cause, so let me start by saying that even though Saul was doing evil right here, I mean, he's going after Christians. Okay, that's bad. But at the same time, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul thought he was doing good when he was doing evil. Paul had the best intentions, you could say. But folks, here's the thing. One thing you have to understand is, you know, intentions, they do matter, you know, in, in, in some ways. Okay, so for example... You know, we've talked about this before. Murder is murder, no matter what, right? But, you know, there's a big difference in premeditated murder and then, you know, like second-degree murder, you know, just or even just something that's kind of an accident, like manslaughter. It's murder, it's bad, but, you know, they'll go easier on you if they realize there wasn't this malicious intent that was there. And I don't believe Paul had malicious intent. I think he was convinced, he was deceived into thinking that these people were heretics and so he's trying to take care of him. He was very zealous as a Jew and he got caught up into the wickedness that was going on during that time. They got him riled all up. They used him to go do their dirty work. But you know, when Saul got a hold of the truth, he changed immediately. And he took that same zeal and he used it for the cause of Christ. But again, even though his intentions were good, and even if your intentions are good on something, if you mess up and if you sin, sin is still sin. Okay? But I say all this because most of us, if we were living back in that day, we'd be like, Saul's a reprobate. You know, that guy that came through and rested my mom, he's a reprobate. I hate him. I'm going to pray he dies. 
and goes to hell. I mean, that's what we would say about somebody like Saul. But that is not the case, is it? That was not the case. And we've got to understand, there's a lot of people out there in the world today that are very deceived. And folks, why would you not be deceived? Okay, and I get some things we should just naturally understand, but people are being indoctrinated from the time that they are infants, pretty much. I mean, everything that they are putting out on the television, and, uh, and I mean, you got kids going to like, you know, preschool, like three years old these days. They are immediately indoctrinating people. Why wouldn't people think perversion is normal? When they've grown up around it from the time they're able to notice anything, so we need we you know we gotta we gotta understand as our world gets more and more wicked, we're probably going to need to uh, be less and less quick to nail somebody with the reprobate label. Okay, I think it's very I think that's very important because we probably would have done it with Paul, this you know hater of God, this you know persecuting the church, an evident token of perdition. It was Paul that wrote that later. But again, there's a difference between someone who knows the truth and rejects it and someone who is deceived. And we don't always know where people are at in their heads. We don't always know that. But the Apostle Paul, again, even though he did it ignorantly in unbelief, he, it was still wrong. It was still sinful. And he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so we need, to, we need to start having more of a vision for people. When we see evil people out there today, we need to start looking at people, you know, not so quick to just be the first one to nail somebody as a reprobate, but to say, you know what, maybe they're a Saul. Maybe that's a Saul out there. And we ought to pray for their salvation. We ought to try to see if we can't help point these people to Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you, a lot of these people that are wicked out there, imagine if they took that same zeal they have for the wicked and they use that zeal for God. What an amazing thing that would be. The Apostle Paul probably did more for Christianity than any other man other than Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm glad God didn't write him off. And so we need, we need to watch out for that. And what everybody got, needs to understand about the reprobate doctrine is it is important to learn not so we'll be good at identifying reprobates. That, that's not the point. But it helps us balance out some things in the Scripture. What's important is that we know there is a such a thing as one. There's going to be times where it's important to understand that, where we need to realize that. You know, we get the classic questions all the time. You know, what if somebody gets saved and goes and, you know, mass murders you know, a bunch of kids in an orphanage or something? You know, then it's like, you know, we, we do understand that the Holy Spirit indwells a believer and... There's just some things that are unnatural that normal people wouldn't do. It's just important that you understand that it is a thing, but we don't have to be experts at identifying all of them. And that, that's, uh, I, I think we ought to, you know, again, give everybody a chance. You know, I think we should preach the God. And here's the, here's the way I look at it, too. I think we should preach the gospel literally to anyone unless it's a situation that would cause us to violate our conscience or participate or turn a blind eye to active sin. So, for example, you know, you get the common cross-dresser scenario. Okay? Obviously, when somebody is in the midst of just blatant, in-your-face, disgusting, repulsive sin, I don't think you have to stand there and just violate your conscience. You know, if somebody comes to the door when you're not soul-winning naked, 
you know, that's just, that's just where you just you hand them a track and look away and move on. You don't have to stand there and give, you know, give them the gospel. If somebody is out there strangling a woman, you don't have to stand there. It's not time to preach to them. You know, it's time to go fight that person. Okay? So, un- so understand, I do. I believe give the gospel to everyone, but you know, common sense has to prevail too. And when somebody is actively involved in, 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 the, in the act of sinning, we don't have to stand there and act like it's okay. We don't have to stand there and be nice when somebody is actively involved in sinning. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to, whenever I knock on the door, you know, question somebody about his sexual orientation or something like that because I don't want to accidentally give the gospel to a reprobate. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm just going to assume anybody I talk to is, who is not causing me to sin by talking to them has a chance of getting saved. So does that make sense as far as, again, ever, preach the gospel to anybody, but when somebody is in the middle of openly actively sinning you don't have to sit there and put up with it if i go and knock on somebody's door and they are drunk or they are like shooting up with cocaine or something like that you know i'm not going to stay in that compromising situation i'm going to move on you say oh so you're saying we shouldn't preach to cocaine addicts i'll preach to a cocaine addict but not while he's in the middle of shooting up with cocaine or snorting cocaine or whatever it is they do i don't know how that stuff works I don't, I don't want to know. Okay? I, I, I'm not going to stay there involved in sin. Okay? I'm not going to go soul winning you know, at the gentleman's club. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do that. Okay? I would be putting myself in a compromising situation and in a sinful situation. You all never have to do that. Okay? You, don't have, you don't have to do that. But we should still have the mentality, preach the gospel to everyone. Give every give everyone a chance. Just don't. But no, none of you are going to be forced to participate or subject yourself to disgusting behavior, sinful activity. So is that clear at all up for everybody when it comes to our kind of a, a good policy and a rule of thumb? So hopefully that uh, you know that's clear. Uh, but verse four says, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And you know, the Bible does not take time to explain what all had gone on in the life of Saul in his heart during the weeks and months or even years leading up to this. All we have about Saul is a brief summary of some things that he had done, and it's all negative so far. But it's important to understand, we have no idea what God has been doing in the hearts of the people we come in contact with. You know, God, Jesus said to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. What's he talking about there? You know, I, I, I think it means the Holy Spirit was, was poking at him. I think the Holy Spirit was pricking his heart. I think he was one of them whose heart was being pricked by the preaching of Stephen. And he's resisting the Holy Ghost. And it was a hard thing for him to do. And, but at the same time, um, you know, that's what God often does in people's lives. Did you know... When we go souling, we get somebody saved. We are probably not these people's first interaction that they've had with the Holy Ghost and with the Word of God. Most people have probably had some exposure to the Bible. They've had some kind of introduction to Jesus Christ. And I'll bet they've even had some, uh, some activity with the Holy Ghost working on it. In fact, I know, I know for a fact many people have had a time. 
Because of the fact a lot of people have been in church. They've been religious. I've had people talk to me before. You know, I've been reading my Bible. I've been trying to figure these things out. I've been looking. You know, I, I had the, the Catholic girl over in Stoning one time who said that her and one of her family members, they were just reading their Bible and they were just talking about that very thing. And she was, she's like, yes, I want to hear this. Okay? You know, God had already been doing a work in her heart. And that's one of the great things about soul winning. And, and, and that's another thing, too. People who are just kind of looked down on soul winning, who act like you can't get somebody saved that quick. Well, I think it's pretty rare to get somebody just saved, to go from nothing to saved in 10 or 15 minutes. But I don't think these people, most of the time, are from nothing. I think there's been a lot done. I think there's been planning. I think there's, been, there's watering that's been done many times. And then a lot of times, we're there for the harvest. I'm convinced of that. And so, again, God had obviously been doing something in Saul's life. And so we see here when this event takes place, Saul ends up getting saved. And we've got to understand, that's really all we are. We're just an instrument. We're just a tool that God uses. And it's just our job to be obedient and to get our carcasses out there and open our mouths and do something. And when we do, we're going to run into all kinds of people that God's already been talking to. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the best soul winner that there is. He's the best one. And He does use us. Nobody's going to get saved you know, just because the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. God uses the Bible. He uses people. And He, he uses situations and stuff. So... It says in verse 6, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Rise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so while Saul was doing the wrong thing and doing it in all sincerity, Saul does. He takes that same zeal and he uses it for good for the rest of his life. When this happens, once he comes to the realization, it is Jesus. Once he realizes that, you know what his first thing was? What do you want me to do? You know, that ought to be the attitude of everybody that gets saved. It's not. But it should be the attitude of every Christian, everybody who gets saved. That should be the first thing they should say is, Lord, what will you have me to do? And that's what Saul did. And let me tell you, Saul did it. And we, we need to have a vision for sinners that we come in contact with. We need to think, we need to look at stories like the conversion of Saul and let it just get it fired up for evil people out there and stop Stop letting your righteousness just cause you to just hate on everybody. And you know what? Why don't you let the Word of God cause you to have hope for other people that are out there? And I've had those people like that. Where it's just like, dude, you know, you kind of see something in them. It's like, man, if we could channel that craziness for the cause of Christ, I think they could really do some great things. I think God could use them in a great way. We've got to think about that more. I think we need to think about the fact too, even people who don't have a lot going for them, people who aren't that talented, we just need to understand, man, if they would surrender their life to the Lord, can you imagine what He would do with their life? We ought to have that attitude with everybody. Every parent ought to have, you ought, that ought to be a thought in your head, that if, if my child will just surrender their life to the Lord, the sky's the limit. And folks, Look at how God used things in the Bible, how God used a stick with Moses. I mean, we see all these little things that God used. We see sorry people that God used. It, what that ought to do with all of us is that it should have, it cause all of us to have hope for ourselves that God could do something with us, but it should also have, cause us to have hope for our family, 
for our for other church members. You know, when new people get saved or when new people come visit the church, even if they're not saved yet, we shouldn't see them with all those problems that they have. We should see them as somebody that God could use if they just surrender their life to the Lord. And we just got to do whatever we can to provoke each other to that. If we could just all get each other, like we talked about Sunday, loving the Lord a little more, there's no telling what kind of great things we would accomplish and what God would do in our lives. And Saul is proof of this. So we got to have a vision for the sinners we come in contact with. So verse 7 says, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And you, know, you can only imagine what was going on in Saul's head during this time. The Bible doesn't tell us. I, I wish it said more about that. But, I mean, after you know, seeing this light, I mean, after realizing that it was Jesus, the one I thought, he's like, I thought I was persecuting a bunch of rebellious Jews. I was persecuting Jesus. I was persecuting the Messiah. You know, there, a lot was probably going on in his head during this time. The Bible doesn't tell us what it was. But he's, he's now blind from this light. And it says in verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the street, which is called straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So here's another interesting thing about Saul. Saul is already having visions. Okay? Say, that's not fair. I want to have a vision. I do too. Okay? I, I want to, I, I, you know what? I hope tonight the Lord gives me a prophetic vision when I go to bed. Kind of. Kind of. All right? And I'll tell you why kind of here in a little bit. But I mean, all right, let's just be honest. When you read about having a vision and seeing something like that, who thinks, I want to have a vision? All right, come on, raise your hand. Who, who thinks your faith would be increased if God gave you a vision and showed you something and it came to pass. I mean, wouldn't that increase your faith a little bit? I mean, come on. Okay. Now, let me ask you this too. Who would probably think, I'm special? Now, you're all going to admit it. But you think, you know, nobody else in the church got a vision. <laughs> I did get a vision though. Now, keep, keep all that in mind. Because we do. We think, Apostle Paul's getting some, or Saul's getting some special treatment right here. It says in verse 13, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Lord, Saul, you want me to go talk to that guy? He's a reprobate. I, I, I heard him called out you know, in a sermon the other day. I'm not talking to that guy. Verse 14, And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Saul, he was chosen of God to do this great work for the Gentiles. Because remember, let's keep all this in mind. Chapter 7, we have the preaching of Stephen. Chapter 8, we see the expansion of the gospel where they're going to the Samaritans, where they're going to the outcasts of Israel, where we see that Ethiopian eunuch. Now here in chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul and before it's been revealed to the church that God's going to do this great work to the Gentiles because the Jews lost the kingdom. 
and they, they finally finished themselves off, I believe at the stoning of Stephen, God is already beginning this work to get the gospel to the Gentiles. And in chapter 10, we're going to see the conversion of Cornelius that signals to the church, hey, this is for the Gentiles too. They don't figure it out until chapter 10, but notice God already has it figured out. And God's prepping the guy that's going to get the job done in a big way. Because God, God knew what was going on. And I, folks, it's not a coincidence. All this happens and all this is written immediately after the stuff involving the Jews when, all right, we're done trying to restore the kingdom here. We're done trying to use Jerusalem anymore. They're in trouble. So there, there's, there's no coincidence here. It's, but God has chosen him to do this. And God, God, okay, I know this might sound a little Calvinist. God chose Saul to do all these things before he even got saved. You know what? And you know what? God has a plan for everyone, even the people who haven't been saved yet. God doesn't just all said, oh, he, look, he got saved. Now I have a plan for him. No, God sees these things coming. I believe that. I believe that, but we don't do like Calvinists and then jump to the false assumption or false conclusion that because God had a plan, therefore God chose him for salvation and did not choose others. That's foolish. Okay, that, that, that's a foolish thing. And so verse 16, notice what God also said. So he's like, I've chosen him for all these great things. But then he said, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Okay? And this is why you might not really want that vision as much as you think you do. Because you know, people often look at the story of his conversion and it's like, man, Saul got special treatment because of these visions and things. And interesting enough, people act like they would believe if God gave them an experience like this. But a few things we've got to understand about the situation. One, this was a special, special situation because this is a special individual who is going to be used of God in a special way. Okay? And, I, and you might think, well, I would prefer to receive what Saul received. But you know what? God also chose him for great suffering too. Remember James and John uh, when their mother came along and said, hey, Grant that one of my sons sit in your right hand, the other left hand. You know, and Jesus is like, I don't think you understand the cup that I drink of. Are you sure you want that? Hey, you want to get some of these special privileges? You want to get some of these special visions? Guess what comes with it? Special suffering too. And you know, you know why we want visions? So we can get lifted up. And remember what, uh, what Paul said later when he was writing and he talked about that out-of-body experience or whatever it was that happened to him? And he talked about all the visions and revelations. And he said, lest I should be exalted above measure. The Lord sent a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And understand that visions and knowledge and things like that would often lift us up with pride. And that's one of the reasons God's not going to give them to us. Because we would. We probably would get lifted up with pride. While, they fought, while Paul didn't. And you know, either, either way you look at it, if Paul ever even thought about getting arrogant and it doesn't appear that he ever really did you know god kept him humble look what he went through constantly beaten constantly thrown in prison just one attack after another and you say i want those visions listen to whom much is given much is required and if god's going to give you all that he's probably going to give you the other stuff too and so you know what if you want to go to bed tonight and pray lord i want the vision okay first of all I don't believe, and you say, and Lord, I'm willing to take any beatings that come with it. First off, 
I don't think the Lord's going to believe you because he's probably going to say, um, you don't even believe half the commands that you read in the Bible already. You already don't even have a Lord, what would you have me to do attitude. I can barely get you to go out and tell somebody about Jesus. I can barely get you to act like a Christian. Oh, but all of a sudden, if I give you a vision, yeah, then all of a sudden you're going to be Mr. Super Christian. Baloney. Baloney. So just understand, we think we want visions. We think we're ready for them. We think we can handle them. But you know what? God knows all of us better than we know ourselves. And you know what? We all probably aren't going to get any super revelations tonight. And I don't, I think I would take it. I do. But here, here, let me just say this too. I, I don't want to, I don't want to chase a rabbit too much here, but you know, it's real easy for us to say, Lord, I'm willing to take the suffering. I'm, you know, if, if it's your will, whatever it is, I'll do it. And I think you can say that and you can mean that to the best of your knowledge. But if the Lord came to you and said, all right, well, here, let's do it this way. You don't have to surrender to us, whatever. But I will do all these great things, but you're going to have to like suffer this tragedy and lose one of your children or something. Oh, forget it. You see, God already knows if that's what you would want or not. He, he already knows that. So, um, again, when I look at Saul and I see this, there's a part of me that looks at things, man, he kind of got some special treatment. But then when I look at the treatment that he got the rest of his life, I was like, you know, Saul didn't get any special treatment. You know, he was just a good Christian. He really was. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't envy him. Because I really don't want to suffer like that. I think I will, if the Lord wants me to. I, I really do. But, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily going to ask for it. Okay? So keep, all, you know, so keep all those things in mind. I think it's important to understand that. But verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And so notice how Ananias called him Brother Saul. And, you know, here's another question. When was the nanosecond when Saul got saved? You know, the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't make those things as clear as we would like them to. You know, we do. We like to fight about that stuff and, uh, you know, argue over a lot of these things. But the Bible is not real clear on that. I mean, we, we know when a person believes, they get saved. But at what point did Paul believe like you need to for salvation? I mean, I see he immediately said, Lord, you know, or who art. But first he said, who art thou, Lord? You know, and then he said, what will thou have me to do? Is that when he got saved? You know, right then when he said that? I kind of hope not. That sounds kind of like that's a good lordship salvation verse otherwise. Because he's like, what do I have to do, Lord? <laughs> but, oh, you know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. One thing we do know, he got saved. Absolutely no doubt about that. And uh, the evidence was all over in his life. But uh, as far as the actual second moment, you know, I said, I think it was probably on the road to Damascus. But... Uh, you know, either way, the Bible doesn't tell us. And so, you know, it's kind of pointless to argue over that. I think we just, just focus on what Paul said and what he wrote about salvation and just teach that to people. And if they believe it, they'll get saved. So verse 19, and when he had received me, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. 
that he is the Son of God. So he's going and now doing the very thing he was arresting people for doing. And I think that's awesome. I think that's amazing. And it says, But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? And Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So, uh, he, I mean, Saul, one thing that was cool about this, he kind of carried over a lot of knowledge that he had uh, about the Bible. I mean, he was obviously somebody very educated in the Scriptures, but now that he's saved, now that he has the Holy Ghost, he's preaching in a big way right here to where he's confounding the Jews. They don't know what to do. This is an amazing transformation. And think about it. Why all of a sudden does he have all this extra knowledge and understanding about the Bible? And you know what it is? It's called the Holy Spirit. He's now got the Holy Spirit. All of those things that were hidden in the Old Testament that we've been talking about are now being revealed through the preaching of Spirit-filled men. And all of a sudden now, the law makes sense to Saul. He looks at it and he's, he gets it. And he's preaching it to these Jews and they're stumped. They're stumped because they can't refute what he's saying. But you know what? They can't quite understand it either. You know why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They're not willing to have faith. They were like they, the Jews of old, children in whom is no faith. And so in order to understand the Old Testament, I hope this isn't a too carnal of an illustration, but uh, hopefully this is one that you'd understand. But in order to understand the Bible uh, or the Old Testament, what you need is kind of like, I'd like to illustrate like a decoder ring. All right. And I know you all remember the decoder ring from Christmas story, right? Where he gets the commercial from it. But the decoder ring, okay, you also need like a formula so you know how to set the decoder ring so you can look at the message and then decode it, right? Are you, are you all following me on this? Well, you know, you could say that the Holy Spirit, he's kind of the decoder ring and the code or the, the message that helps you know how to use the decoder ring so you can decode the Old Testament, the code is Jesus Christ. And so if you understand, so think about the Holy Spirit. He's like that decoder ring. If you have that, and then if you punch in the formula, or you set that decoder ring to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you can look at the Old Testament and you can see clearly what it's talking about. But without the Holy Spirit, without Jesus Christ, you're not going to understand it. And that's why we have people today, you have Jews today, they can read Isaiah 53 and they don't see Jesus. You and I are looking like, how can you not see that? Because they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They've, they've rejected Jesus Christ. And so they're going uh, to miss these things. So verse 23, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill Him. Okay? And why? Why are they killing Him? Because He confounded them. Why didn't they just debunk Him? Why didn't they just win in an open, honest debate if they're so right? You know why? Because the Jews have always had the philosophy of eliminating the opposition. They've never been able to handle open and honest debate. They've always silenced the opposition. Why do you think we get strikes on YouTube all the time? Especially when you talk about them. Why? You know why? Silence the opposition. Okay? And they don't have the legal ability to kill us right now. 
But, you know, they do have the ability to, you know, to kill our social media presence. And they're doing it all the time. And everyone knows who's doing it. There's no doubt about it. And so they, so, you know, they can't, you know, they can't kill all the messengers. So, you know what they do? They buy all the major television networks. So they can always control the narrative. It's always been silence the opposition. That's all they've ever been able to do. They can't, they can't handle an open, honest debate. And it says, but their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. So Saul, he gets, he gets to see some cool visions. He sees Jesus. He sees uh, you know, the future with Ananias coming and healing him. But his life has immediately become very complicated. He was somebody who had authority and now he's a man on a run. He's being let down the wall by a basket at night, escaping like a fugitive, like a criminal. You know what? Be careful what you ask for when it comes to those visions. And Saul didn't ask for these things. God just chose him for it. And Saul said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And God chose Saul for a reason. God knew he could get the job done. And he did. So it says in verse 26, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and he, that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out in Jerusalem. And what is so interesting about this, this small event is that when Barnabas, he, he goes out on a limb defending Saul, which obviously started a friendship that eventually, you know, led to them those two doing big things. And so Barnabas, being a, a, he's every time he's mentioned, he's always talking about exhorting people. He was known as the son of consolation. He goes, he reaches out and he goes out on a limb. He goes against all the other disciples and says, "No, listen, I, I've seen what he's doing. I trust him. Okay, you guys know, I'm a good judge of character. I trust this guy." And then. So, Saul and him become great friends. They work together. And then, so it was Barnabas, his giving him a chance that made them friends. And that same attitude is what eventually made them part ways. It's kind of another interesting thing because later, you know, Barnabas feels the same way about John Mark. And there's all this contention between him and Paul and they end up parting ways. And you know what? We're still fighting about that to this day. Who is right? And I'm still on Barnabas' side, ladies and gentlemen. All right? I'm still on Team Barnabas when it comes to that whole fight between them because whenever there's a fight in fundamentalism, we always got to take a side. We're still fighting over that one. And everybody that was for Paul, get out. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, uh, you know, hey, Paul wasn't perfect. Okay? You know, Paul, Paul was not, he was not perfect. I don't think he got everything right. I think he was wrong in that situation. But you know what? God still used him. You know, God didn't quit using him because he got one thing wrong. And, you know, and he got it right later. Later on, he's telling him to bring John Mark with him. You know why? Because Barnabas was right. But anyway, we'll fight about that. And we'll fight about that after church. And so it says that he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. And when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the church churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. And so while things had gotten very intense for a while, mainly because of Saul, 
the church is now kind of receiving a small break from the intense persecution that's going on. God's doing great things. And so while there's kind of a calm in the storm right now, and, and the book of Acts doesn't really give us a good timeline on things. It'll just kind of mention things in passing, how you know things happen, but it doesn't, it doesn't give timelines. And so I don't know how long this calm was, but let me tell you, Satan was not going to stand by and ignore this because we're going to see things are going to heat up again. Things are really going to heat up, no doubt about that. And so, uh, right there, the story of Saul kind of ends, where it ends on a good note. The Word of God's multiplying. They kind of have rest. The persecution has died down for now. And so, in verse 32, it switches gears and kind of go, it goes to a story with Peter. And it says, And it came to pass, as Peter throughout, passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwell at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. And so we're kind of back to where they were in Jerusalem originally, where miracles were taking place, all these great things are happening. And so it is. It's kind of another time when God's doing miracles. These things are happening in more places. Gospel's just getting to more people. Uh, and it says, uh, but you know, not so much at Jerusalem anymore. You know, Jerusalem, uh, they, you know, they've kind of had their chance. But the Gospel's still getting to these other places because there's a lot more Jews that need to hear the truth about Jesus. And so it says, uh, now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And for as much as little was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with him. And you know, we don't, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. You know, what a great testimony this woman had in her church. All she's really known for, she's not known for her great soul winning abilities or anything like that. But you know what she did do? She was somebody who was good to the saints. She was somebody who was good to God's people. And let me tell you something. We need people, we need Christians to be a blessing to other Christians. You know why? Because it's not always easy being a Christian. And you know, anything we can do to exhort one another and to provoke into love and good works, you know what, that, you know, that's rewards for you too. If you provoke me to do something good, you know, I believe you share in that reward. If, we, if, if us bidding someone Godspeed that's bad makes us partaker of their evil deeds, then wouldn't us bidding someone Godspeed who's doing good make us partaker of their good deeds? You better believe it would. And let me tell you something. God notices those that are being good to His children. We all notice those who are good to our children. Somebody does something nice for your kids, you have a hard time not liking that person. But you know, and we see this woman was somebody who, not, not only is she doing good things to people, but she's doing good things to people who probably can't do anything back. It mentions specifically widows. 
looking out for other people, taking care of other people. They're showing Peter the work that she did. This was a precious soul in that church because she was just being a blessing to people. You know, that needs to be the attitude of everyone in here. Everybody that comes to this church, you ought to have the attitude, you know what, if I'm going to be here, I need to make church better tonight. And you know what, there's a lot of ways we can do that. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on that. But folks, your presence, it does make a difference. Your presence does matter. You being friendly can make a difference. You just saying nice things, greeting somebody, talking to somebody, you know, listening to their problems, encouraging their problems, praying with them, you know, buying them something, just little things. Folks, God's not going to forget these things. And you know what? People, sometimes people do forget things, but you know, I think they remember more than we realize too. And I could, I could stand up here all night and just talk about little things that people have done for me throughout my life that still stick with me. And I'm talking, I'm talking little things that I still, that I, I, I still remember. I still think about guys like Marvin Huback who went to my dad's church and he was, he, if you knew him, he was kind of a rough character. He had some issues. He had some serious issues, but I was, he, when I was a little kid, he was so nice to me and he would come up to me all the time and he was kind of a rough character. He was like, all right, come here. And I, but, but you know, I was never scared of him. You know why? Cause he'd talk real rough and mean to me. But he'd always have something in his hand, and he'd open it up, and it was usually a peppermint. And so I did. I, you know, I love the guy. He was always giving me peppermints. But I remember one time he opened up his hand, and there was a fake spider in there. It scared me to death. And like for a long time after that, I was always nervous every time he would like come, and it was like he felt bad. He, ne- he never did it again. But I, I, I still remember that. I, I still remember things like that. And you know, people like that as a little kid made me want to go to church just a little bit more. And sadly, a lot of kids today, they don't even like church. You know why? Because they, they got a bunch of Millies in their church. Okay, now, who's Millie? Right. I, I could start singing a song right now. One of my friends made up a song about her one time. But uh, Millie, <laughs> Millie, she was mean. Millie always sat right in front of me in church. I'd do anything. She'd turn around and shh. And I remember I sat in front of her one time, so she wouldn't be able to turn around and tell me to shh. And I remember I was sitting in church, and she tapped on my shoulder. And I turn around and looks like Psh. she was mean. I, I I didn't like her. And then yeah, and and I remember my friends that made up the song. I'm not going to sing it. It'd be inappropriate for me to. It, it wasn't a bad song. It was just it wouldn't be very dignified singing it from the pulpit. But in that song, there was a part that you know she's all, always likes to you know tap kids and shoulder go. Psh. That was like one of the things in the song. So she was known for. We'd be playing outside. She'd come yell at us for stuff. She was a miserable lady. I remember when I heard she died. I felt bad for not feeling bad. <laughs> she was she was mean. She was really mean. And you know, don't don't be a Millie in church. Don't don't be like that. These little kids they notice those things. But fortunately, she didn't ruin me because we had the Marvins to offset the Millies. And be a, be a Marvin. Don't be a, don't be a Millie. But anyway. Dorcas wasn't yelling at the kids in the church. She was making stuff for them. I guarantee it. But verse 40, And Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. So, it's very clear God allowed this persecution to take place because He wanted the word to spread to other areas. And so what we're seeing happen everywhere the apostles go, it is, it's what happened, kind of the pattern that you see with the apostles so far 
is they go somewhere. At first, the Jews put up with their success. You know, they're, they're bothered by it. They kind of put up with it. But eventually, they're too successful. And they start turning the world upside down. They start shaking things up. And then the powers that be finally just say enough's enough. And then they get violent. That's typically what happens. And, so that's, and that's still the way it is in many places today. You know, there's some parts of the world you can go and evangelize as long as you aren't too successful. You know, if you're not too successful, they'll put up with you. But as soon as you start turning things upside down, it, it's going to get ugly real fast. And, you know, I, I could be wrong about this, but I was thinking about this just in our area. Okay, when it comes to our area, you know, I've talked to a lot of our local leaders. Uh, I see our mayor all the time at the gas station. I've, I've talked to him uh, before, uh, you know, but... Um, you know, it's my opinion when it comes to this area that if we had a real revival, I think our area would receive it. I don't think we'd get run out of town. I, I think, you know, because a lot of the cities that are out there today, you know, unfortunately they're run by a bunch of Christ-rejecting evil Jews that are going to persecute any success that takes place. I think out here our city is mostly run by lame, dead Christians that probably would like to see, you know, some things happen, but they're just in lame, dead churches. And I, I, don't, I don't think we would receive major persecution if that happened. And so, you know, but I don't know, maybe we would. But either way, um, you know, I'm not going to talk so much about, you know, we're done now, but, I, you know, I do believe God could, you know, that our church could really shake things up in this area to, to make a real difference in this town. Or maybe, you know, we, I, I think we would have enough power, potentially, we could do so good in this town that they might start making some rules and laws where the Jews would come here to mess with us by, like, you know, having the state, you know, challenge our laws and things that we're doing out here. And you know what? If that happens, that just means we're doing our job. So they're, they're, the Jews are always going to come looking for you wherever you're successful. And we're going to see that throughout the Bible. You say, that is so, so racist. Have you ever read the book of Acts? That is what they do throughout the book of Acts. As soon as they go somewhere, even in more Gentile areas, and they start succeeding, they go hunt them down and chase them down. That's what they do. And so again, our area would be fine, but if we're too successful, they'll start sending people in. They'll start hiring the loot, certain loot fellows of the base resort to come challenge what's going on. And you know what? I hope we have that challenge. Because that just means we're getting a ton of people saved and revival's happening in this area. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help to everyone. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story of uh, this miraculous conversion that took place. I pray you'll uh, help it to inspire us to give the gospel to as many people as possible. Help us not to give up on people so easily, but help us to have a vision for them. I pray you'll help us to be like Dorcas and be a blessing to other people and to encourage the saints and all those who are uh, your children and are, are striving to do things for you. In your name we pray. Amen.